Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. I'm your host, Leonard DiLorenzo. Have you ever felt in between, not quite sure where to fit? Today's guest on our show, well, she gets that. Except that for her, the point has not been to fit somewhere rather than another place, but instead to creatively and faithfully abide in between. Mita Volpe describes herself as a contemplative theologian called to the work of motherhood. She is a lecturer in theology and ethics at Durham University in the UK. She researches identity and formation in Christian practice, especially in her book, Rethinking Christian Identity, Doctrine, and Discipleship. She has experience with L'Arche Communities, founded by Jean Vanier, and has a scholarly and a personal interest in thinking at the intersection of theology and intellectual disability. She is invested in the Catechesis of the Good Shepherd, a topic of a recent show of ours, and all that it offers for forming children in the faith. On these and other topics, she has spoken at numerous conferences all over the globe, including recently here with us at the University of Notre Dame for a liturgy symposium devoted to the sacramental catechist. Mita Volpe, welcome to the show. You know, it strikes me that you're involved in lots of different kinds of communities, and you kind of move among them and between them, theology circles and catechetical circles, the instruction in the life of faith, the life of scholarship, the life of practice, uh, the workplace and home and work in the home, writing and teaching and parenting and just a whole lot of stuff, and you're in between these. Where do you find yourself? Where, is, where do you find your passion? I think probably my passion is in doing all of those things at the same time. Hmm. Um, I do find that it gives me a different perspective. I sometimes struggle with being on the margins of the academic world. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like maybe my scholarship isn't always where it should be. I sort of feel insecure about my CV. But at the same time, and I think, well, if I had just gone whole hog and said, I'm just going to do this academic thing and I'm going to push myself um, into this area, I feel like I would have lost out on a lot. I wouldn't maybe have had the time to do training for Catechesis of the Good Shepherd. I wouldn't have had the time to go deeper with things like the L'Arche communities. Mm. Um, I've been able to do retreats with Jean Vanier on a couple of occasions, and those things have really shaped the way that I think about the more academic stuff that I do. Um, So I'm interested in the intersection of, for example, spirituality and the life of prayer and the life of scholarship. How do we see those two things fitting together? Um, I think a lot about the way in which children um, form us and teach us and lead us. And I think I wouldn't have been able to allow myself to think like that um, if I'd sort of pulled away um, from home and family life to devote myself in a more full way to the life of scholarship. Mm. Um, I said to my PhD advisor a million years ago, before I had children, I, I want to do, um, do theology in a way that takes children seriously. Ooh. And she said, well, she couldn't figure out what I meant by right. that. I said, well, I don't want to do theology for children, obviously. You know, I'm right. doing a PhD at Duke. Um, but 
I didn't even realize until later that what I really meant was I want to take formation seriously, Christian mm. formation. And I think that's probably where my, my deepest passion is, is in formation, because it's all of the spheres of our lives. It's in all of the things that we do that our Christian formation takes place. And I would say that my own kind of the cutting edge of my spirituality is in the home and with the family. Um, I think St. Benedict, I went away on retreat yeah. uh, several years ago and read the Rule of Benedict for the first time. And I thought, this is amazing. This is wonderful. Um, but this isn't where I'm called to be as wonderful as it is. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the family and the home is a school of the Lord's service very much for me. Um, mm -hmm. And formation sort of drives me in all the areas of my life. In each of, well, in a number of those things you just mentioned, the Catechesis of the Good Shepherd, large communities, Benedictine monastery, place really matters. So I asked you, you know, at the beginning, you're kind of in between all these various places, then you identified the home as place. So. I'd love to talk about a couple of those, mm -hmm. like the Catechesis sure. of the Good Shepherd. Um, what is it about that that's drawn your imagination um, that really seems to you, as it, as it seems like you're saying, as a, as a robust form of Christian formation for children? Well, I first discovered it actually here uh, in South Bend mm -hmm. uh, when we came over a few years ago. My kids, a couple of my kids went to Good Shepherd Montessori School here. Okay. And I read about it and I thought, this is just amazing. Mm -hmm. It's not word-based. It may be because I have a child with Down syndrome. Uh, I have another child with dyslexia. Um, and I'm interested in a sort of robust formation that this really appealed to me, the way in which people, um, well, Sophia and Jana came up with these works for children um, to engage with what scripture says and what the church teaches uh, in a way that's appropriate for their level, mm -hmm. but that's still deep. Mm. Um, and I think I was probably influenced, at least in part, in my interest and my joy in discovering this by my husband because he came over, he visited the school, I wasn't even there, and he came back, right? He's a historical theologian, right. doesn't, you know, he goes to work. You know, he's like, I'm happy just, you know, in my office and the kids are at home. That's fine. Um, loves them, whatever. But he said, you should see this. You know, it's amazing. And it was the Bible. It was the way that they'd done, they'd done the Bible for level two right. with all the books showing that the Bible is a collection of books. Uh -huh. And he was so excited about it. Uh -huh. And you could see that here's someone who's a patristic theologian, does historical theology, um, Augustine. And he, he could see that connection between what the church has always taught, what people like Augustine have said, and this method of catechesis. I can't imagine any other way to introduce like three to six-year-olds to the theology of Augustine right. and the history of interpretation right. of the Bible, yet it's all right there. It's so, so deep. It sounds um, exactly like what you said to your doctoral advisor, right? I, I, I want to do theology that means something for children, yeah, right? Yeah. And here it was. Yeah, it's, so, it's such a robust way of thinking about um, what the church has to offer. And I think the other thing that I like about it is that we so often think that as adults, we teach children stuff. So I have the information and I give it to you. Mm -hmm. um, I have the chores. I do have those. And I give those to the children. Yeah. Right? I, <laughs> yes. know, I know what the chores are. I know yeah. what the chores are, right? Uh -huh. That's true. 
Um, and sometimes they do them and sometimes they right. don't, right? Sometimes you end up doing the chores after they do them. We yes, all know that, I right? Know. Uh, yeah, 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 that happens. But they've got to learn, right? They've got to learn at some point. Um, but the Catechesis of the Good Shepherd really invites the catechist to prepare herself, or in some few cases himself, mm-hmm. um, by going deeper with the Good Shepherd. And then the catechist and the child together listen to the voice of the Good Shepherd. And it takes seriously that children are at a different stage, um, which means that they need certain things from adults, but they have something to offer as well. Mm-hmm. They really have a way of seeing the world um, that's different. I can remember when my three-year-old um, son, who's now 11, we were at the back of church and the elevation of the host. And this is, was a child. This is long before I knew anything about the Catechesis of the Good Shepherd. And long before he'd had any sort of catechetical instruction whatsoever, he just was at mass. That was right. it. And we were at the way at the back of church. I think there was a pane of glass between us and actually what was going on, <laughs> uh, as you do when you right. have little ones. Um, and he just he's turned to me and he said, that's the big Christ pointing at the front of the sanctuary. And he turned to me and he pointed at me and he said, you're going to get the little Christ. And I was astonished. Oh, Absolutely astonished. Ah. He just listened and worked that out for himself. Pretty cool. You're listening to Church Life Today on Redeemer Radio. We're talking to Mita Volpe, lecturer in theology and ethics at Durham University. That's the Catechesis of the Good Shepherd. We could probably talk about that for ages. And we've recently had someone on our show talk about that. So this is a great follow-up to that. But I'd love to also pick up on another community that you mentioned, which is the L'Arche community founded by Jean Vanier. Um, tell us a little bit about L'Arche for those who may not be familiar with it and your draw to that particular community. Well, I, my draw to L'Arche has been because I have a child with Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. And, and so I became interested in uh, people with disabilities and the life of faith that's possible. Um, Finding out about Jean Vanier unfolded over over time. It was my husband, actually, who gave me a copy of his memoir, which is A Life in Letters. It's the letters that Jean wrote from the beginning of L'Arche in 1964 when he invited two men from an asylum to come and to make a home with him. Mm-hmm. And from those very small beginnings to the worldwide organization that you have now in, in L'Arche International where there are communities throughout the world where, where intellectual people with intellectual disabilities and people without intellectual disabilities make a life together like, like a family. They mm-hmm. live together like a family. Right. But one, one of the things that struck me so deeply um, when I read those letters was that Jean throughout the time, throughout his time, would always sign off asking his recipients of the letters to pray for him Specifically, pray that I remain faithful to Jesus. Hmm. That L'Arche is not a program. L'Arche was was Jean Vanier's response to what was a call to go deeper with Jesus. He just wanted to be a faithful disciple of Jesus. He didn't want to start an international organization. He just heard the, the cry for love and the cry for relationship of Raphael and Philippe and said, this is what I this is what I need to do, uh, and that's how Larsh began as just a simple discipleship. Uh-huh. I want to remain faithful to Jesus. This is what I need to do. A simple discipleship, and yet a bold decision to actually say yes and to do yeah. that one yeah. step, which yeah. was a hard step. 
It must have been a changed his. Li- I mean, changed yes. his everyday life yeah. to have these two people living with him, and his not just their lives changed, his life changed yeah. in that. What do you think a community like Larsh um, has to say for the renewal of the church, which we're constantly? This is a big question, right? Yeah, it's huge. Um, for we're we're continually talking about the new evangelization of mm. re enlivening the gospel in our modern world. Um, what kind of sign value do you think Larsh has, or what does Larsh has, have to teach the rest of the church? Well, I think Jean has something to teach us all because his life before he started this community, this little community with these two uh, men, he was quite a successful person. He had a PhD, taught philosophy. He'd been in the Navy. Um, he, you know, his father was a diplomat. He'd had quite a sort of a life of achievement and mm-hmm. success and even a certain kind of prominence. Um, so deciding to move into this you know, kind of small town in France and to lead a hidden life um, says something about what discipleship requires. Mm. But then what ended up happening out of that was a whole new way um, of kind of giving his life back into the world. So his, his spirituality, his own life of faith offered out to the world is what created L'Arche. And I, I think we're very driven today. It's really hard to get away from that drive for success and achievement. I know I feel that when I look at my CV, I think I haven't done enough. You know? right. And we feel like we have to do all these things um, in order to be taken seriously. And here's John, and what did he do? He just moved into a house with two men with you know, some profound, you know, fairly profound intellectual disabilities. But that that's what it that's what it is. That's what mm-hmm. it takes. And he has this amazing witness. And Mother Teresa, the same. Right. You know, she has this amazing witness. But what did she do? She started out picking up one person mm-hmm. off the street and has grown into this, you know, this worldwide organization that is a witness for what happens when you can when you care for the least. The power of a profound yes in that case. Yeah. A simple but profound yeah. yes. yes. Um, that has repercussions over years for people. Going, maybe coming back to you a little bit from CGS and from Larsh. Uh, I love reading your blog now and again. Thanks. And for those of you at, at home who might want to check it out, it's a theologian in the family.net. Uh, in one of your recent posts, you wrote about your concerns regarding what I think you described as the evaporation of childhood mm-hmm. and actually motherhood, the loss of motherhood going along with that. Um, seeming to be going on simultaneously. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've seen? So it's something you've observed, but also it seemed like something that you have been involved in and kind of involved in the tension of those things. Yeah, I mean, it's mostly observation from my own life and the lives of people close to me. It's not, I'm not a sociologist, so <laughs> I can't can't speak to That's that. That's all right. Um, but it's just anecdotal observations. Um, as simple as something like... Um, just thinking about the sorts of things that I learned from my mother because she was around Hmm. um, that I haven't taught my children in the same way because I haven't been around to the degree that she was. You know, I I lecture half time, um, which is still like a full time occupation. Right. And then I, you know, full time mom at the same time. Um, But there are things that I learned from her uh, and there were ways in which she was available um, and we were kind of just in the neighborhood that, that don't really happen anymore. Um, just a small example from my own life that has more to do with the loss of motherhood and 
the loss of kind of I don't want to say housewifery because that's not quite what I mean, but there's a sense in which our our lives become so busy. And there's this um, elderly um, lady at the gym that I go to. Uh, I see her, you know, a couple of times a week. And she she and her husband are retired. He's had some health problems. They live around the corner from us. but she, she sort of remarked that it was kind of boring and she didn't get out much. And, and I thought it'd be really nice just to say, come around, come live in England, come around for a cup of tea, you know, any time. Um, because, and if I had been a sort of traditional 30 years ago homemaker, right. uh, it's easy to, to drop, say, well, I can do a certain a chore, this chore, that chore, I can do that later. She drops by, I'm available mm-hmm. in that way. I'm available for whatever, going to the park, doing this, doing that, um, in a way that I'm not quite as available when what I've got to do isn't just kind of keeping things going. But at the same time, I'm, I'm you know, trying to finish an article. I'm trying to prepare a presentation. I'm trying to get ready for teaching. And these things put a different kind of pressure on. Um, and I feel like there's something that's being lost in just the time that we have for each other. Mm. Uh, we don't have that kind of time for each other anymore. One of the things that caught my eye in your post was the the line, I think you said, uh, the recovery of something like a radically available parenting, Yeah. something like that, yeah. um, having to do with this, of, of being there yeah. and the time being available. But as you're so, uh, so well describing, I think many of us can relate to this. Even when we're somewhere, our thoughts might be elsewhere. Yeah. And we're worried about shifting between so that radical availability may not be there. You're listening to Church Life Today on Redeemer Radio. We are talking to Mita Volpe, lecturer in theology and ethics at Durham University. So let's talk about raising children today. And you, you mentioned at the beginning um, your real passion is in formation and all these different ways in which formation happens, Christian formation. But the home perhaps being the primary place for that. Um, what... What are your, I don't know how to put this, maybe your concerns relative to the Christian formation of children, your children, not to be, not to have to divulge too much, right? But how to form them in a Christian identity in the world in which they're inhabiting and going into and um, all of the things that come along with that. Well, I think it's, it's a difficult thing at the moment. We've been really helped by the fact that our kids go to, or kids have gone to a um, Catholic primary school mm-hmm. works differently in England than it does here. So your public schools, uh, the C of E and the Roman Catholic Church run primary schools that are public. They're free. Oh. It's fantastic. I <laughs> know. Oh, it's your dream, right? Hopefully our politicians are listening. <laughs> yeah, this sounds great. It's, it's wonderful. Yeah. Um, and it's, they've done a really good job of, of helping with that. Mm. But I think one of the things that's hardest um, about raising kids, well, two things. One is that one of the things that I discovered, probably too late, um, is that it's not intuitive. You know, what we should do is it's not always intuitive because we, we're emotional, we're emotionally engaged, we've got our own baggage. And so we kind of, resp- if we respond without uh, reflecting, thinking, taking a step backwards and saying, okay, wait, hang on a second, what's really happening here? What do I really need to do for my mm. child? Um, I think we miss something. Um, and I think the other thing that's, that I think we've lost is the significance of tying someone else's shoe, you know? Mm, tell me about that. Of, of doing those little things. Well, there's, there's a sense in which 
well, Betty Friedan, you know, uh-huh. big fans. There's a sense of it, it's boring. Yeah. This stuff is boring. It's not meaningful. It's not significant. Right. It's not important. Right. And I think that I, I cannot say anything other than I'm really grateful for the women who made it possible for me to do the work that I do in academia. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I feel a profound sense of, you know, loss because those things are really, really important. All those little things that we do for our children, mm. that raising and forming human beings is the most important work that there is in the world. Mm. Like this, we're talking about the next generation. Right. You know, and I, I said to someone who had taken her baby out of mass because he was crying or whatever, and I said, you know, we should welcome them into mass they should always be there no one should say you know like if some child's making noise because this is why we're here this is the future we need to we need to realize that we are raising people who are going to make the future for themselves and for us Mm -hmm. there's going to come a time when we're dependent on on them and if we haven't taken the time and said the everyday these little things they're important, you know, then I wonder what's going to happen when they're very busy with their lives and we've shown them a model of achievement and success and all of that. And suddenly we need them just to spend time with us when we're old. When our well-being and depends on them paying attention exactly. to our little things. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so I feel a profound sense of loss about that. And it, but it's a tension, like you say. It's a, it's a deep tension because I love the work that I do. Right. Um, my academic work. I love my teaching and my writing. Um, and I, I love my I love my children, and um, I, I love the way that they teach me patience and humility. Uh, usually, <laughs> how do you do you think about how to form your children to negotiate those very tensions between work and career, um, and availability to others, especially to family, um, to be able to give their attention where they are fully. Gosh, I probably haven't not done a very good job of that. Well, at I haven't all. either, so don't yeah. worry about it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> my my kids and I we were in the car uh, the other day on the way back from actually on the way back from church, and they were talking about God answering prayers and not answering prayers and why doesn't God answer these prayers and those prayers? And I so said, you're doing a good job if your kids are having this kind of yeah they're having this sort of conversation yeah okay yeah. thanks that, that's, that's helpful. <laughs> you're doing better than most of us and I just, I just turned I said to them well I can tell you two things you should never pray for and they're like oh whoa what and I said patience and humility because God will always answer that prayer uh-huh. and you are not going to like it. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe you should pray for it, children. Come exactly. to think of it, this is what I would exactly. want most for you. Yeah. Um, I'll pray for that for them. That, that sounds like a very good prayer. And maybe anybody who's listening can pray for your children in yes, that way, please. for their patience yes. and humility. Yes. We have just a moment or a minute or two left. So I just wanted to ask you, you uh, came to Notre Dame Mm-hmm. this summer to participate in one of our liturgy symposia to present mm-hmm. on the Eucharistic life. Yes. Um, gave you a whole bunch of, we gave you a good bit of time to do that. I'm going to give you about a minute. Um, tell us, what is the Eucharistic life and how are we formed for it? I think the first thing that's that to say um, is that the Eucharistic life doesn't begin in our action but in our imagination. Hmm. It's in our understanding of the Eucharist, like Lumen Gentium says, as the source and summit of Christian life. It's it's what forms us and shapes us. Um, But it doesn't form us and shape us simply by us turning up. 
it forms us and shapes us as we meditate on it, as we contemplate the mystery of the faith, um, that we understand the depth. Um, this is Christ's presence with us. We become what we receive. And then if you want to know what all of that means, you have to read Sacramentum Caritatis. <laughs> That's, there's the sign-off. Thank you so much, Mita, for sharing Thanks this for time with me. us today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for joining us on Church Life Today. We'll talk to you next time.